Let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 19 this evening. Genesis chapter 19. We saw two weeks ago that God is always perfectly just in everything that He does. And occasionally He allows us to see that. Sometimes He simply just acts out injustice and we don't fully understand what He's doing, but He's always just. Abraham didn't completely understand God's justice in Genesis chapter 18. And that's why at the end of the chapter, he pleads with God and says, well, what if Sodom has 50 righteous people in it? Will you spare it? He didn't understand God's justice. Of course, Abraham didn't realize that there weren't 50 people. There weren't even 10 righteous people in that city. And so Abraham, through this circumstance, through the angels now coming down to the city of Sodom, and witnessing their wickedness, Abraham's able to see that they are indeed wicked and that God indeed was just. Last week we saw this wickedness of Sodom and their sin. We were able to see that that God is completely righteous in what He does. One of the purposes that God gives in the Scriptures for allowing Abraham to see His justice is so that Abraham can can witness it firsthand and be able to pass it down to future generations. That's what it says in chapter 18, verses 17 and 18. When the Lord is conversing with the two angels and He says, should we tell Abraham what we're about to do? In other words, should we tell him about this judgment that's coming or should we just go ahead and do it? And the reason that they do, the reason they came up with was Yes, we should tell him because he has a responsibility to tell future generations. And we are the beneficiaries of Abraham knowing about God's justice in this this judgment. Because it was written down by Moses, one of his descendants, and, and would be passed along all the way to us. And so we are able to see further the the justice of God that Abraham was able to see. Did you ever wonder why God brings earthly judgment on people? Why He takes people through such difficult things like this? I think there are at least two reasons for these earthly types of judgment. I think of the flood. I think of Sodom here when I'm talking about earthly judgment. We think of the uh, the tribulation period. Those what I'm talking about when I'm talking about earthly judgments. I think there are two reasons. One, God hates sin. And sin has to be kept in check. Remember before the flood, if if sin were allowed to go all the way, it would have eventually taken uh, taken over the entire world potentially. And God said, "I'm going to start over. I'm going to start over with Noah and his family." And so He destroyed the world. I think think the second reason that God brings an earthly judgment like this one here in chapter 19 is to warn others of God's future judgment. God's not messing around. He's not playing games with us when he says the judgment is coming. And here are two examples, the flood and Sodom. Do you remember why the angels went down to visit the city of Sodom? We saw last week that it was to see if, well, chapter 18 actually at the end, was, uh, or towards the, towards the end of the chapter, it talked about 
how they wanted to see if the, the wickedness of the city was indeed great. Verses 20 and 21. And so in chapter 19, we'll actually read this whole passage beginning in verse 1. We're able to see that they were able to get an answer to their question. Their question was, is Sodom indeed wicked? We want what's going to happen is God's going to rain down judgment, but He's going to do it on the basis of deeds. We want to see if they, in fact, are wicked. And so they, they t- go down to the city and find out that the, the, uh, the outcry of the city, in other words, their sin, was indeed great. And the, the proof of that sin was, was in their repulsive behavior. And so that meant that it was going to be a time of devastation. That's what we're going to look at this evening in chapter 19. But let me begin with a passage that we looked at last week, verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 26 so that we can understand the context. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground and he said, Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And then you may arise early and go on your way. And they said, however, no, but we shall spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the door. Then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here, a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And they brought them outside. One said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, O no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown to me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this is 
This town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please, let me escape there. Is it not small? That my life may be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. The focus of our attention this evening is going to be verses 12 through 26. And what we're going to see in this passage is that judgment is coming, but God spares some. Judgment is coming, but God spares some. God is just in all that He does. God is, in His wrath, is righteous to do what He does because of sin. The passage begins in verses 12 through 14 with a warning. The angels warn Lot to leave. Says then the two men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters, and whoever you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we're about to destroy this place, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. This is the first Lot knows that the city is going to be destroyed. He doesn't know the intentions of these strangers. He brings them into his home. He provides for them a meal, protection from these perverse people out in the town. Of course, the, the angels have to protect Lot eventually. But Lot doesn't know that the city is going to be destroyed until right here. When the angels say to him, who else do you have in the city? Do you have any sons? Do you have any daughters? Any sons-in-laws? Any other people in the city? Whoever you have, tell them about it. Because we were sent here for one reason, to see if their sin was indeed great. We've seen that tonight, and now it's time to destroy the city. But there's hope, Lot. There's going to be an opportunity for escape. Now, it's unclear whether Lot has sons. There is some debate over whether he does because of verse 12. It says, Whom else have you, have, whom, whom else have you here, a son-in-law, and your sons and your daughters? could be that Lot did have sons, but they were so... Corrupt. They were part of every male of the city that we talked about last week. Uh, it's hard to say, uh, but I actually believe that that he probably did not have any sons. I think the angels were simply just saying, whomever you have. That's why they say at the end of that, and whomever you have in the city, bring them out. So if you have sons, if you have daughters, sons-in-laws, daughter-in-laws, get them. Bring them, bring them here and tell them to come with us because we have to get out of here. The reason for the destruction is seen there in verse 13. We're about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord. The Lord has sent us to destroy it. What we should see from this is that the ultimate judgment comes not from Satan. The ultimate com judgment comes from whom? From God, right? Now this is should bring us hope because sometimes when we look at 
judgments that come on the earth or catastrophes that come on the earth, we automatically want to attribute it to Satan. And sometimes Satan is allowed to do catastrophes, but ultimately it comes from the hand of God. God is judge. He will determine when the Tower of Siloam falls, for example, and on whom it falls. God has ultimate control over these things. And that should give us hope because there are no accidents in God's universe. There are no chances. There are no lucky breaks or uh, unlucky breaks, we could say. God is in control of it all. Lot, in verse 14, uh, somewhat sadly, tries to compel his son-in-laws to come with him. And it's sad because of their response. Look at verse 14 with me. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to them, to his sons-in-law, to be jesting. He goes to them probably with much fervor. says, these guys are not technically his sons. They're called sons-in-law, but it says there that they're about to marry his daughter. So, uh, similar to Joseph uh, with Mary, he was espoused to her, and it would be similar to that sort of situation. And uh, he goes to them and says, guys, come on, judgment's coming. We've got to get out of here. We have to leave. This gives us further window proof that Lot was a faithful man. He, he, he messed up badly in many places, as we saw last week, but he also was a man of faith. He heard the message from the angels, recognized that it was a message from God, and acted upon it. If Lot was not a man of faith, how would he have responded to the warning? He'd have just sat there and done he would have done nothing. But he responds by going to talk to his sons in law and warning them to leave the city. And we see their reply at the end. They thought that he was jesting, they thought he was joking. And why why would they think this? Now because we give Lot usually a bit, such a bad rap because he was wicked in some places, he he did some wicked things. We tend to think that this is they don't believe him because he's not very credible. He's been compromising all along. And because of his compromise, his sons-in-law can't believe him when he speaks truth. He's like the boy who cried wolf. But we have to be careful about being too harsh on Lot here, uh, and I don't want to, I don't want to make a hero out of him in, in, in that sense. I hope that you see that I'm not trying to do that. But but we have to be careful about reading too much into that because didn't Jesus give a message, a warning to lots of people while he was on the earth, and lots of people thought he was jesting? Okay, so, so we have to be careful about reading to the, too much in that. I don't think the text gives us enough uh, enough to be able to say one way or the other whether this had to do with Lot's testimony or not. The fact that he was saying this was, was a step of faith. I think the point really is not so much to focus on Lot and his weak faith or his, his uh, occasional wickedness, but, but it's more to show the utter wickedness of the sons-in-law they had been they had been caught up in the sin of Sodom so much so that they didn't want to let it go. They had their grip on the city and the sins that they enjoyed. 
They're so deceived by their sin that they thought peace and safety while judgment rises like a flood. Isn't this what unbelievers often do? This is what unbelievers will do during the tribulation. Many of them will. Not all, but many. When God's judgment is threatened or delayed, it should be an opportunity for us to respond with reverence and fear, but these sons-in-law did not do that. They ignored the warning because of their own self-deception. And the sad part is is when we ignore warnings of judgment, when we ignore what God is going to bring on those who oppose Him, the warnings of judgment become less shocking the next time. And eventually the judgment comes and it's too late. So now that Lot and his family have been warned, verses 15 and 16 show us the forced evacuation. Forced evacuation. Verse 15 reads, When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. So the next morning, they wake up. This was it. Judgment was here. He says, Lot, it's time. Take your wife and your two daughters. Let's go. Notice verse 16, Lot's response. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him and they brought him out and put him outside the city. Not sure why Lot hesitated. Perhaps it was because he was it was his hometown. He had set his roots down there for years potentially. Maybe he hesitated because he was concerned for their souls. Maybe he didn't want to leave his possessions. But the point is here that he did hesitate, didn't he? Judgment was coming, and he wasn't quite ready to follow the angels fully. And uh, what we can learn from something like this is that when we are warned about God's judgment, that we should discipline ourselves to, to be obeying immediately. Because whenever we delay in our obedience to God, it often gives, or I shouldn't say often, it always gives Satan an opportunity when we delay in our obedience. And thankfully for Lot, God was on his side and he kept pursuing him. That's what it says in the middle of the verse, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And so the angels grabbed his hand, grabbed the hand of his wife, grabbed the hands of his two daughters, and they started to head out of the city. And the Lord was right from chapter 18. There was not even there were not even 10 righteous people in the city. Hard to believe when you have a man of faith like Lot who had been there for apparently years and there's not even 10 righteous people in this city. Verses 17 through 22 we see Lot's fleeing to Zoar. First, we see the commands there in verse 17. It says, When they had brought them outside, the angels brought the family outside. One said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you'll be swept away. And there's two main commands here. One, do not look behind you. That's in the middle of the verse. We could uh, Let's go back one. The first one should be, Escape for your life. And escape for your life includes 
with the things to follow. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or else you'll be swept away. So the, the main command there is escape for your life. The second main command is don't look behind you. Of course, that will come into play when we get to verse 26, and we'll talk about that when we get here, when we get there. But what the angels were saying is that this entire valley, not just the city of Sodom where you live, uh, Lot, the entire valley is going to be destroyed. Okay, picture Abraham looking from from near his home, near his tent, down over this entire valley. He can see the lights of Sodom where his his uh, nephew lived. But this entire valley was going to be swept away by this judgment of God. But Lot doesn't want to completely leave the area, does he? He doesn't he he's okay with leaving Sodom. Okay, I can do that, but but he wants to go. He doesn't want to go to the mountains. And that's why in verse 18 he says, "Oh no, my lords. Now behold, your your servant has found favor." Again, he tries to show his uh his uh, courteousness with them. You've magnified your loving kindness. You've shown me you, that you've shown me by saving my life. But he says to them, "I can't escape to the mountains. I can't do that. I'm not going to survive there." So there's a small town, a small town in the valley, and we'll find out later that the name of the the town is is Zoar, which means small. He says, "I'm going to be destroyed in the mountains." It's amazing that Lot, he, he believed that God was going to bring the judgment on him, but he didn't believe that God, or not on him, but on the city, but he didn't believe that God could save him in the mountains. God was sparing him from a, a, a catastrophic judgment. Why could God not save him, protect him, preserve him while he's in the mountains? But Lot gives this request, request nevertheless. Maybe an excuse. Maybe he wanted to maintain his city life. Maybe he wasn't a country type of guy. Couldn't live out there in the mountains. Um, but there probably has, there's probably something to say about Lot's weak faith here. So he offers this alternative, verse 20, a small town. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to and it is small. Please, let me escape there. The reason I know that it's part of these this valley area is because if we were to go back to, I believe it's chapter 14, where Abraham has to rescue Lot from the four kings. Remember the four kings that, that the five cities were paying tribute to, paying taxes to? They that, all of a sudden just, you know what, we're not going to do that this year. We don't want to, to give you taxes. And so what happens? The four kings rise up in anger against these five cities and start attacking, pillaging the area kidnapping people, taking them into captive. Lot was one of them. One of those five cities that didn't pay tribute was Zoar. And that's why we know that it's part of this valley. And so Lot wants to stay in the area which originally was going to be part of the judgment. It was originally going to be a part of what they were going to, to, uh, to destroy. In fact, we can see this more clearly, uh, verse 17. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Okay, verse 25 says, And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. 
the only place that was spared was this city of Zoar. Uh, look at verse 21 because you can see that, that this city was originally part of the, the original judgment. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Okay, so it wasn't just that, you know, I said to go to the mountains, but I guess you can go to this other small city. But he, 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 what he was saying was, we're not going to overthrow this city that was originally part of the, the judgment. We're not going to overthrow it. So, so go to that town. But we can't do anything, Lot, until you go there. And it's amazing that, that the angels grant him this request. Now, some would argue that it must have been a good request because it was answered. It must have been a good request because it was answered. But, but does God ever give us what we want, even if it's, if it's not the best thing for us? Sometimes God gives us... Okay, if we think in the largest picture, we have to say yes. He does give, give us what's best. But sometimes He allows us to get what we want in a temporal sense in order to show us that that's not really what we want. It's like a father who recognizes when his child asks him, asks him for something, the child doesn't understand why he can't get it, and eventually the father says, you know what, I'm going to allow you to see what, what, what that's like, not in a, uh, means, as a means of judgment. But we've got to be careful about saying, okay, well, this has to be a good request because it was granted by God. Notice the, the, the angels in verse 22, they say, Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. So now there's a change in plans. Instead of going to the mountain where the, the, uh, the family was going to, to take, be taken care of, now they were going to a smaller city nearby. And judgment comes in verses 23 to 26. The overthrow of the city is found in, in verses 23 through 25. The sun had arisen, had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. The time of the day was probably by this time when it was by this time it was probably mid afternoon because the sun had arisen over the earth probably at the height of its uh, of its shining and God sends down fire and brimstone burning sulfur from the heavens to destroy this region. And the text says that that nothing remains. Right? Verse 25, He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants, all the people. Whoever was left in that valley was destroyed. But not only that, all of the, the greenery as well. Everything that grew on the ground was destroyed. Animals, of course, would be included in this. But in verse 26, Lot's wife looks back. Look there with me. But his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now, the first thing that we need to ask about this last verse here is what makes looking back so bad? What was wrong with this? Do you remember the two commands? One was escape to the mountains. And what was the second one? Verse 17. Don't look back. Don't look behind you. And that is exactly what she did. 
Now, the way that we often picture it is probably due to our flannel graphs growing up or pictures in storybooks. And we see we see her look back, just a quick glance. We may, may, may imagine it in that way. She just gives a quick glance as the city is burning on fire. But if we understand the text, I, I don't think that's the picture at all that's going on here. In fact, the idea of looking back is not a quick glance at all. Turn to chapter 15, verse 15. I'm going to show you one example where this same word in the Hebrew language is used to refer to the same idea. And it's not talking about a quick glance. Chapter 15, verse 15. That's not the text I'm looking for. Um, Sorry about that. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 33. I have several others here. Thankfully, I've been a terrible uh, way to prove what a word means if I don't have a text for it. Exodus chapter... There is another place in Genesis where that same word is used. Apologize for that. Exodus chapter 33. We'll begin in verse 7. Now Moses used uh, he used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about, whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Notice how it's translated there as gaze. Same word in our text that is looked behind or looked at. Okay, So the idea there is not a quick glance. It is a staring at Moses as he's about to enter the Holy of Holies. About to enter the very presence of God. Turn to Numbers chapter 21. I'll show you another example of where the same Hebrew word is used and translated different way than, than our text is. Chapter 21 of Numbers, verse 9. Remember the the serpents come and are uh, plaguing the city by allowing many of the Israelites are dying as a result of these serpents. And verse 9 says, And Moses made a bronze serpent, serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay, in other translations, it's translated, he gazed to the bronze serpent. The idea there is not that he, if you just get a, a little glimpse of it, you know, as you're, you're fading away into death, you just open your eyes and just get a quick glimpse of that, that serpent on the pole, then you will live. The idea is, is a gaze, a, a, a studied look at. This word is used further, and you, you don't have to turn there, but Job 28, 24, and Psalm 33, 13 where God looks to the ends of the earth and sees all. Does that mean that God just takes a quick glance at it and looks away and goes on with His other business? God has a full knowledge of what's going on because it's as if He is is putting His full gaze on it. He knows what's happening. Psalm 94.9 says, God formed the eye. Does He not see? Does He not gaze? Is He not able to see all that's going on? 
Psalm 119.15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. Same word that's used there. Look on your ways. Gaze on your ways. Does that mean that we that, that the psalmist is saying, I'll meditate on your precepts and I'll just take a quick glance at them? The idea of meditating, we see the parallelism in that verse. I will meditate on your precepts. I will look with regard. I will regard your ways. There's a parallelism there between those two words of meditate and regard or gaze or look. And so we know that it has much more to do than a simple glance. Turn back to chapter 19 of Genesis now and look at verse 26 because now we can, we can understand this verse in a, a proper way, I think. Verse 26 reads, But his wife from behind him gazed back, and she became a pillar of salt. She's looking back in, in an intent way. She's gazing back as if she misses something, as if she wants something that she doesn't want to leave. And we know that she's gazing back not while fire and brimstone are being burned down. Why? Because when... Is the fire and brimstone allowed to begin? Where do they have to be? Right, they have to be in Zoar. Right? The angels say, Hurry, escape there. We can't do anything until you arrive there. So you arrive to a place of safety. So the pictures that show Lot's wife looking back with the fire burning in the background are not accurate. The fire hadn't started. Okay, now if if you had the picture where the, she's a pillar at that point, a pillar of salt, then and those would be accurate. But but the fire actually comes down after this point when she gazes back. Further proof that she lingers behind is found in this verse 26. It says, but his wife from behind him. How did they all start? Do you remember? It says the, the angels say it's time to go. They each grab two hands. A daughter and a father, a daughter and a wife. Okay, each of the angels have one of the hands of the family members. They all start together, apparently. At some point, the angels are no longer there. And the family's going on their own. And now Lot's wife is way behind. And why would she be, be behind? Because she's gazing back at the city. Lot and his daughters apparently have obeyed to the point where we know where there's going to be destruction. And Lot's wife was from behind him. She was slowly progressing away from the city, maybe walking backwards even. She's not watching the city being destroyed at this point. She's probably looking back in nostalgia, thinking about all the great times that she enjoyed, the affection that there was with this life in Sodom. And the text says the result of that gazing back, which is what she was not supposed to do according to verse 17. The result at the end of the verse says, Verse 26, that she became a pillar of salt. Now, this is probably not a pillar of table salt. Okay, where she's standing up, you can see the outline of her face. More likely, according to Josephus, an early Christian historian, more likely she gazed and lingered, he says, while Lot and his two daughters continued on. He goes on to say that eventually when the judgment did come, she was succumbed to the sulfurous gases once the destruction began, which brought about her death. And her corpse then lay there exposed and became encrusted in salt and debris 
so that she became a pillar of salt. She lingered a long time. It wasn't that she just got hit with a stray beam of burning sulfur. It was that she was looking back at the city that she loved so much. And as the fire started to rain on the city, sulfuric gases started to take over her. She eventually died from them probably. And she turned into a pillar of salt. This is how the Jews during the tribulation should not act. They should not linger. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 24, come down from your rooftops, go right to the mountains. Don't waste any time. Go there quickly. When judgment is coming, it's not time to linger. It's not time to think about what might have been. So I said one of the two re- there, there are two reasons for why God brings judgment. One is God hates sin and He must deal with it. Sin has to be kept in check. And two is to warn people of future judgment. To warn people of future judgment. Turn to Second Peter chapter two. This is where we finished last week, and uh, we'll actually come back to Genesis one more time. But last week we looked at this passage to see. We wanted to see the righteousness of Lot because it's hard for us to see in this story where Lot is even righteous at all. We, we see him as a, a man who is compromised in many ways, and, and that's true. But this text was proof for us that Lot was a righteous man, that he was oppressed over the wickedness of the sin day after day, remember? And this passage now, uh, that, that was not the main point of this text, by the way. Okay, I was using that text. That's not the main reason that Peter brought those things up. The main reason he brought it up was that real judgment is coming. Because judgment happened on Sodom and Gomorrah in that valley, it will also happen in the end times. And so be warned. Because God's final judgment is just as sure as this judgment happening. Look at chapter 2, 2 Peter, beginning in verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, did he do that? Yes, he did. We just read about that in Genesis 19. If he did that, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day, by their lawless, lawless deeds. Okay, now we finally get to the then statement. The first part of it is, if God destroyed this wicked city, and if He saved a remnant, okay, if He saved some people, protected some, here's the then statement in verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Here's the argument that Peter is laying out for us. If the Lord knows how to destroy Sodom, the Lord knows how to protect His own from Sodom, then the Lord also knows how to protect His own in the the final day of judgment. And the Lord also knows how to keep the unrighteous for pun- under punishment. Look at verse 9 again. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous 
under punishment for the day of judgment. If Sodom was destroyed as it was because they had uh, because they had disobeyed, they had enough to be able to obey God. Won't our judgment be far worse? Listen to John Calvin on this passage. He says, If this severe vengeance of God so fell upon the men of Sodom that they became blind with rage and prostituted themselves to all kinds of crime, certainly we shall scarcely be more mildly treated whose iniquity is the less excusable because the truth of God has been more clearly revealed unto us. Calvin says, we have even more to be judged for if we fail to obey God here. That our judgment will be even more sure because they had very limited revelation, didn't they? They didn't have the written Scriptures like we have, both the Old and the New Testament. So we must respond. When God delays in judgment... Our response should be one of repentance, of faith, of obedience. And right now, God is delaying in judgment. We have not been destroyed. He has not brought His judgment on us. So if we, if we have not repented, then we should. Turn back to Genesis chapter 19 because in this passage we see Lot's slowness. Verse 16 Lot's slowness in turning from sin. Very well, very well could have hesitated, according to verse 16, because, because he enjoyed that sort of life. Certainly his wife enjoyed it. She could not stop gazing at it. But Lot eventually did heed the warning, and that's why we can see his faith and that his faith was credited as righteousness. His sons-in-law did not heed the warning. His wife ultimately did not. But but the there is a, a focus on God's judgment in this passage, but I think there's more to this passage than that. And that is, not only is God's judgment coming, but God spares some. God spares some. God's mercy to the ungodly is seen in His protecting of them from judgment. Notice verse 22. The angel, the angel says to him, Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. We already saw God's mercy last week in allowing the angels to protect Lot from these perverse men standing outside the door. ready. They, they had him pinned up against the door, ready to break the door down. And the angels pull him in, close the door, and blind the men. We already saw God's mercy in that way, that He protects His people. But here we see it again. Hurry, escape to the city of Zorah, because I can't do anything. I'm not going to include you in this judgment. Why? Because you're mine. I own you. I'm not going to allow you to go through that judgment. Why? Because you are mine. But I think the best verse on God's mercy in this entire passage
passage, and this is the silver lining in a passage of such dreary judgment. The best verse is in verse 16. Look there with me again. After they tell him, up, get out of the city, take your wife and your two daughters, you'll be swept away in the punishment. Verse 16 reads, but he hesitated. Lot hesitated, but notice what they do. So the men seized his hand, and the hand of his wife, and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. If you underline things in your Bible, I would encourage you to read, to underline this verse. But he hesitated, so the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hand of his two daughters because the compassion of the Lord was upon him. God doesn't stop pursuing His people, does He? He doesn't give up on them, even when they hesitate. And that's the great part about our God, is that He spares some. For some reason, He keeps coming after us. Think about the worst sin that you've committed or the worst habitual sin that you've been involved in. Where would you be right now if it were not for God? Where would you be right now if God left you to that sin? What would you be doing? I was talking the other day to a person from our church who is concerned for for a family member family member who was cold and indifferent to the things of God. And our church member warned this family member to be careful. Watch out because God may bring something terrible into your life and you will be sorry. That was the point. Some type of catastrophe, car accident, some difficult tragedy that would be hard to recover from. There was a deep concern for this family member. And the warning was God could do something bad. But you know it would be far worse than that? I told this person it would be far worse if God let that person continue in their sin. The worst judgment that God can bring on anyone. You see, the worst earthly judgment that God can ever give us on this earth is not to bring a tornado and wipe, all, wipe, wipe away all of our family mementos or take all of our family like He did for Job. That's not the worst earthly judgment God could bring on us. The worst earthly judgment is not for one of our family members to be involved in a, a fatal car accident. The worst earthly judgment is not for God to cause us to lose our job. The worst earthly judgment has nothing to do with those types of circumstances which all can be devastating. The worst judgment that God could ever give you on this earth is to let you continue in your sin. And that's what God does to some. In Romans chapter 1, we read about those who love their sin. God says, you know what? Have at it. I'm going to give you over to your depravity, to the lusts of your mind. 
And you will see it's not worth it. You're not going to have any remorse. You're not going to be sad about going to that sin. You'll have no concern for me or my laws. And so if you're under the sound of my voice right now you have, and you have the slightest concern for spiritual things, it's not a testament, a testament to your greatness, just like it wasn't for Lot. It's a testament. His withholding of judgment is not because he sees your sin as minor and he minimizes it, or that he, doesn't, he doesn't care about sin. The only reason that you have a spiritual flame in your heart right now is because God like He did with Lot, had compassion on you. God saves some. He spares some from judgment. Look at that verse again. He hesitated, so the angel seized his hand. And then later on it says, because the compassion of the Lord was upon him. Have you ever hesitated in an act of faith? Have you known what was right in a situation and yet you waited? You hoped that it would go away. Sometimes God grabs us by the hand and says, come along, I'm taking you anyway. I'm not going to allow you to, to go into that sin like you want. Maybe you hesitated when you needed to ask forgiveness from your spouse or your parents or your child because you mistreated them. Maybe you hesitated when you knew that you should have written a note of encouragement to someone in the church. Maybe you hesitated when something came up at work that should have been reported and you didn't. Maybe you hesitated when someone around you, perhaps in this church, was living an ungodly lifestyle and, and you didn't do anything about it. You just turned the other cheek. You, or tur- turned, turned the other way. Allow them to do and go on in their sin. Maybe you hesitated by, by knowing that you, were supposed, that, that you should be, be cultivating a relationship with God every day by reading your Bible, by talking to Him, by praying. Don't hesitate. Because hesitate turns into a gaze if God does not rescue you. And if you gaze on the things of this world, you'll be destroyed with it. But the hope in this passage is that God is merciful to those who put their faith in His Redeemer. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, God is merciful to them. How will you respond to that mercy? Will you presume upon it and just continue to, to balk at His his commands for you? Will you respond to His mercy with obedience, with perseverance, with faith? Our God is a merciful God. Judgment is coming, that's true. But God spares some. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that, that You do pursue us as sinners. Like the song we often sing, we are prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love, take our hearts 
Lord, now and seal them. Seal them for your courts above. Lord, we are creatures of habit, creatures who love our sin, sometimes in place of our love for you. Many times that's the case. We exalt our own pleasures over the pleasures of the life to come, over the pleasures of seeing you satisfied in us. Sometimes we don't believe that those pleasures, the pleasures of obedience are really true. We, we can't see how, how possibly it could be a better life to leave the wickedness of our former lifestyle and, and, and move on to obedience. So we're thankful that You grab our hands in many cases, that You do a unilateral work in us, a one-sided transaction where You take hold of us and You drag us out. Do that for us, we pray. Do not turn away from us. Be faithful to us all the way to the end as we seek to do the same to You. Lord, we don't want to punt. We don't want to give up on a responsibility to obey You, to love You, to show that we understand Your mercy and that we are indebted to You forever because of it. Help us, we pray. There perhaps are some here this evening who do not know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we pray that You'd help them to understand the beauty of having a relationship with Him. pray that You'd help us to be able to live as good testimonies before them, that we would be able to share the truth with them, that in Your time that they would turn to You, give their lives to You, and believe as we once did as well. Lord, there are thousands of others just within our own circles of influence the people here in this room who do not know Jesus Christ. And like Sodom and the people of it, they, these friends and family members and co-workers and neighbors of ours, will be destroyed in the final judgment. We don't want to see that. We recognize that we can't be held responsible when we've given them the Word, but in many cases we haven't. So we need your help. We want to reach out to the people around us. We want to, to, to be honest with them. Show them what's most important in this life. And we know that, that You will spare some of them. We trust that You will. So we pray that You'd help us to pray to that end specifically for these people within our circles of influence. And that we would see Your hand of mercy upon them. And that great praise would would go up not just in heaven and seeing salvation of one soul, but but in our church as well. As we see You magnify Yourself through the salvation of one. Lord, may that happen through the relationships that we have in this church this year, we pray. Help us to be changed by this passage that we have seen this evening. Change to be more like Your Son and to move to the next level of glory so that in the final day, we will be like Your Son, Jesus Christ, when we are fully glorified. But we pray that, that we would be being changed now so that it's not quite a shock when we get to that stage of glorification. We need Your Spirit to help us in that way. In Jesus' name, Amen.